Hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, August the 18th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 220. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So thank you for joining me here today on this very gusty, windy Friday here in the northeastern United States. And uh, you might want to know what's going on. Well, first thing you need to know as a beekeeper, you need to spread the word because what's tomorrow? Tomorrow is National Honeybee Day. So it's a great day to spread the word, put that out on social media and all that, encourage people to help the bees in any possible way they can, or maybe just learn something new about bees. What's going on outside? It's really gusty, windy, stormy, kind of rough actually, and it's cold. It's 63.7 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 17 Celsius. 19.2 mile per hour wind velocity on average right now with gusts at 30 miles an hour. So not a great day to be keeping bees. So I don't even mind being in here with you right now. 67% relative humidity. So the bees have collected a lot of nectar and they're doing it right now. We're in a nectar flow. Uh, they're able to dry that out pretty quick at 67% relative humidity, which by the way is down 3% from yesterday because I know you wanted to know that. This is going to be a great beekeeping weekend coming up here in my neck of the woods anyway. Tomorrow and Sunday are going to be sunny and clear. 71 degrees Fahrenheit tomorrow, 81 degrees Fahrenheit on Sunday. Those are fantastic beekeeping days. Air quality is moderate. And what I mean by that is the amount of smoke we're getting from the Canadian forest fires, which, by the way, are uh, in a state of emergency. So things are still out of control in Canada when it comes to the forest fires. And that's pretty much it. So the topics that we're going to cover today are listed in order down in the video description. There are also links there. If you want to submit a topic of your own for consideration for next Friday, please uh, follow the link down there. Let's kick it right off with the very first question here. Pete from Somerset, Wisconsin says, I was wondering if you would talk about the insulated covers that you make for your five frame resource hives specifically. What kind of glue do you use to build the covers? What kind of paint do you paint on the foam? And uh, in order to protect it from the sun, I appreciate it. Thanks. Okay. That was my... Um, Thumbnail image for today. You're going to be impressed by this, by the way. So this is pink rigid pink panther foam R10, two inches thick. This has been cut by hand. I know that you're being impressed right now by the extreme attention to detail and how really well crafted that is. I hope you appreciate the humor there because those things are just slapped together. That stuff comes in four foot by eight foot sheets and the the key comes in to how you cut it. That one was cut by hand. I don't recommend doing that. If you've got a table saw or something that guarantees you a nice perfect 90 degree edge, consistent dimensions and everything, you're much better off than that one is. Uh, and how did I stick it together? So that's the other question, the glue part. Well, it's glued with the expansion foam. What kind of expansion foam, you might be wondering. Well, that's great stuff. So it's not above average stuff. It's not good stuff. It's great stuff, expanding foam. You get it at any hardware store. Why would I use that? Well, because there are people that uh, sculpt things out of foam. So when they do that, they want the foam to be as strong as what's binding it together. And, uh, so a lot of foam sculptors use expansion foam in the joints. They squirt a little bead there, push it all together, clamp it all up, let it set. It expands out, fills the gaps, and is just as strong as the foam. So the foam that's expanding, that fills all the little cracks and crevices, which makes up for a lot of uh, maybe poor craftsmanship, if you're like me. Then you can cut away the surplus. And then the final part of the question is, how do you protect it from the weather? What do you paint it with? Well, exterior semi-gloss or gloss preferred latex paint. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. You can get cheap paint. If you go to your local paint supply store, I don't care if it's Home Depot, Menards, Lowe's, wherever you go, whatever building center, there are always some people who have complained about the paint that they got and they return it. Then the person that runs the paint mixing area, that department manager, whatever, uh, they keep those buckets of paint underneath the counter and they sell them at a fraction of their original cost. I don't know if you've priced 
external exterior latex paint lately, but you can pay 50 or 60 bucks a gallon. How much do you think it is if it's a return? Usually five or six dollars a gallon. Don't quote me on that, but make friends with those people, get it free, paint your cover. Now, some of the early ones uh, were given to me and they were covered with uh, duct tape that lasted about a year. So if you're in a rush, you can wrap it with duct tape. Um, what else can you do? The other thing is uh, a lot of you may not be understanding what do you put that over? Well, it's going on my nucleus hives, which are five frame wooden hives, which have the migratory covers. The migratory covers are just a thin three quarter inch piece of uh, pine. And underneath that now, I like to put a single layer of double bubble cut to the width of the nucleus hive. And then I just put this down over the top. The dimensions are not critical. Leave yourself enough room, of course, to get that over. Uh, the other thing is, uh, how deep should it go over the top? That's not critical either. So you kind of work it out to where you can get the most number of these out of one four by eight sheet of uh, insulation foam. And uh, if that's too big for your car, they have breaking points on them. I think they're at 16 inch centers, something like that. So they actually are pre-scored so they could be snapped off if you needed to to get that in your car. But be mindful, of course, of the final dimensions that you're gonna need. And uh, how long will they last? I've never seen one wear out. If this was exposed without paint, you can get several years out of it, even without painting it. It's just gonna look ugly in your BR. So that's it for the rigid foam board insulation. And those uh, new hives are fantastic. They are great resource hives, and we're going to talk a little bit about that even more today. So let's go on to question number two, which comes from Jeffrey, Plainfield, Illinois. Let's see. Currently, I have two hives, one nucleus hive. See, we're just talking about those. And one eight-frame flow hive. I just did an inspection on my flow hive, two deep boxes, and a flow hive super. I had a queen excluder between the brood box and the second deep box up until today. I'm starting to prepare for the end of the season and wanted to move the queen excluder to give the queen access to both the eight frame deep boxes as we near the end of the season. I discovered three queen cups on one of the frames. Two of the cups were open emergency cups. So that's actually the difference between a queen cup and a queen cell. It's a cup, it faces vertical, you know, and uh, there's nothing in it, so it's just a cup. Looks like the cap on an acorn, without the acorn. And uh, let's see, and the other cup had what appears to be royal jelly. However, when inspecting the third cup, I could not see a larvae or anything other than the jelly. The queen's brood looks fantastic and the hive doesn't seem to be overcrowded. Should I be concerned about this discovery? I'm gonna stop right there and give a commentary on that. If you're looking into any brood cell, whether it's a queen cell or whether it's a worker or a drone, if you see royal jelly in that, you have a larva in there. So even though you can't see it, because the moment the egg hatches, the larva emerges, that's what triggers the nurse bee to feed the larva. It reaches it releases a pheromone that says, feed me. So you have a queen developing in that queen cell. Moving on to the question, it says, should I be concerned about this discovery? Yeah, why would they start filling this cell if everything seems fine inside the hive? Well, they're doing it because they're about to replace that queen. And here's the best part. Jeffrey says, I isolated the queen and remarked her during the inspection. So you've got the queen isolated and marked. Good, because you need to take that queen and her frame of brood, pull it out and create a resource hive, a nuke, just like we were talking about here, uh, as insurance, because you've got another queen in the making. You have that option, or if you're 100% sure, the only queen you have is in development in that cell, and that's the only queen cell you have, and you think you can remove it, still keep the queen that you currently have so that she does not swarm, because late season swarms happen, and when do they happen? During these heavy nectar flows at the end of the year. 
So that's what I recommend. Pull the queen, a frame of brood and resources, so minimum of two frames, and put that in a nucleus and swap out the other frames and push the remaining brood together. Don't split it up. And uh, see if they build out a new queen. And if they do, uh, then you've got another colony started. Or if they don't successfully create a new queen, then you can move them back in there and uh, you've lost nothing. So... And I also did a mite count, alcohol wash, found one mite out of 333 bees. That's great news also. So anyway, I hope that answers the question. I would personally pull the queen since you know where she is and since you've already isolated her. And if you've got a queen isolation cage, that doesn't always stop them from swarming, just keeping the queen there. So I would pull the queen out, create another colony and uh, in another box as a an emergency backup in case the replacement queen because it's not too late in the year for a replacement queen to get out and do what she needs to do and also uh, if they fail to replace the queen successfully then you can bring them back and you've not lost any production because the queen that you put in the nucleus hive is still in lay still in production and you still have a backup colony of bees so good to know question number three from brad chester new hampshire my Saskatras nine frame deep three by three observation hive swarmed on July the 27th. Excited to hear a queen piping and then they swarmed again on July the 31st. No piping, but the bees have started to bring in pollen with no sign of eggs on the outside frame. If I continue not to see any eggs, when would you recommend ordering a new mated queen? So what do you think I'm going to say? I think that because you see pollen coming in right now, they're developing brood. There's no reason for them to bring in pollen unless there's brood in development that requires them to feed them. So I think actually that you've got a queen in there and just because you're not seeing it on the outside frames of the observation hive, you have four surfaces, four frame fronts that you are not able to see and I think the quantity of pollen coming in alone should answer that question. So I think you should just wait it out because I think they're good to go. Pollen alone, because we know they're not doing laying uh, workers yet because that would happen three weeks after the loss of a queen. And then you had potentially have laying workers. It's too early for that. So because they're bringing in pollen, I think they're feeding brood. I think you have a queen. And give us a follow up later. See if we were right. Question number four, moving on. Mike from Westchester, New York. When bees abscond, so absconding, that's when bees leave the hive completely. You just show up, you go to inspect your hive, it's gone, they're missing, no bees. Do they bivouac like they do when they swarm? Would a colony that is being robbed ever abscond? Yes, they sure do. Uh, so here's the thing. And because I did this and I do this periodically, sometimes when there's a really small colony of bees, it's not doing well. I'll just uh, dump a whole uh, swarm in on them and see what happens. Now you can combine them carefully and slowly by having the resident colony set up, put newsprint in between, cut little holes in the newsprint, put your new swarm on top and let them blend together. Usually that's what you do if you suspect that one colony is queenless, but sometimes they're both queen right, but one of the colonies is underachieving. In other words, the queen is there, you have all levels of workers and everything, but the cluster stays small, the brood area is small, and they don't seem to be making any progress. Best case scenario would be, of course, to pull the queen out in the underperforming colony, get rid of her, and then, of course, mix them together with your swarm or whatever you're combining. But uh, so sometimes when you go to install a swarm with a colony like that, or you go to combine them, rather than combining, the smaller cluster can depart. They can completely leave. Absconding means they take everything with them and off they go, never to return. Do they bivouac? Yep, they gather on a branch. I would say it's most likely that they bivouac. I'm not saying it's 100% every time because frankly, we don't follow them around. But when you see them abscond, depart the colony, depart the hive, and it's completely empty, and you see them clustered on a branch again, they've absconded, and now they're in a bivouac. The bivouac is their temporary location, 
intermediate to where they're finally going to go. Sometimes you'll see this happen too. Uh, when you try to hive a swarm into an empty hive and you find out they're unsettled and then they leave it again and go right back to a local tree branch right nearby and they bivouac again. Although at other times that could count as their bivouac if they're temporarily in a hive. They'll move out onto the face of it, hang on the landing board, cluster underneath and form a beard, refusing to go in even though the hive is empty. And then from there, they fly onto their final destination. So the bearding underneath the front of the hive, that counted as their bivouac. So that's the end of question number four. Question number five comes from CJ from Norton Shores, Michigan. I'm a first year beekeeper with two hives. I modeled them after your standard Langstroth setup with a few modifications. I have them on a license stand set at 24 inches above the ground. I bought the Hoover hives from Galena Farms, solid bottom board, hive gate, currently at two deep, 10 frame boxes and uh, for brood and wintering. An insulated inner cover, wrapping around feeder, medium box for a feeder shim, and an insulated cover. I've been feeding them one-to-one -one sugar since I wanted them to build comb. I did buy 10 frames of better comb and those are being used for the brood. The nukes I purchased came from came with the comb and the other half of the frames are heavy wax, plastic foundation. I do inspections every 14 days, weather permitting. And the bees are building comb on the foundation frames. During my inspections, I'm having a hard time seeing anything but the mesh of my veil. I got the Guardian Bee Apparel Vented Jacket and the Circular Veil since they were out of the fencing one. I'm gonna pause right there because there's some things I wanna talk about. One of the things that are mentioned in here is the hive gate. A lot of people don't know what that is. This is an entrance that this time of year becomes very valuable to a lot of beekeepers. That's because uh, it can help with robbing. And the reason I bring this up right now is because uh, Better Bee published the study finally. So you can see what the findings are. So if you go to my YouTube channel page, which is Frederick Dunn, and then you look at the social media statement period, there's a link to the study right there for those of you who are interested. If not, you can also go to my main website, which is thewaytobee.org, and you click on the page called the Hivegate Study. So that's there. The link to it is there and you can find out more about it. So anyway, the Guardian Bee Apparel. Uh, Guardian Bee Apparel, by the way, is my favorite vented jacket. It has the zippered veil. They were the original producers of that zippered veil. And that allows you to unzip your front uh, without taking your whole hood back off and you can drink water, things like that. Zip it just enough to stick a straw in there. Zip it open enough to reach in and adjust your glasses if they've become crooked and things like that. Fantastic jackets. You can always add more clothing underneath. But here's the thing. The question is about the veil, being able to see through the screen, which is hard for some people. And we're going to talk about some of those options in a second. I did manage to see eggs during my last inspection, but it's a struggle. Any suggestions? I'm doing the inspections at noonish with the sun above and behind me, but even focusing on the bees is hard. My second question. Is it normal not to see any drones in the hives? No drones and no drone cells. Granted, I'm having trouble seeing things through the veil. Okay, so there are a couple of different things. Um, there are veil attachments. And I forget the name of the one. There's one where you can pick your favorite veil that you already have, cut a hole through the screen, and then uh, you attach it right on. That was part of my West Virginia Honey in the Hills conference video. So if you want to see the people that have developed that and exactly step-by-step step how it works, how it looks on your veil, then that is there. And I will link that to question number five. So West Virginia conference, and then you'll look for the sea view, see through, BC, I'm, I forget what it's called. Uh, but that's in there, and the person that developed it demonstrates it. So that's one. Number two, there's another company uh, at honeyflow.com that sells bee suits. And they have different options of veils. And this is Flow Hive, by the way. It's the same company. 
The veil has a mesh across the bottom, which goes right in front of your mouth, of course, so that when you're breathing, you don't fog it up. But the upper two thirds of that fencing style veil is nothing but uh, transparent lucite or something like that. So for those of you who have trouble seeing through the mesh, um, looking through that, those panels are easy to use. And that those bee suits are not very expensive either. So you get one bee suit and choices of different veil types. So I'll put links to the veils and uh, you can go from there. But yeah, that's, uh, that's the best thing I can think of. The other thing is for people that are having a hard time seeing, I recommend these pen light flashlights that you can carry right in your shirt. Some of them have USB chargers on them and uh, really illuminate the cells that you're trying to look in. Once you start to see eggs and things like that, once you see a couple, you'll start to see them everywhere because it's something that you have to train your eye to do. And I also realize that a lot of people, as you get older, a lot of beekeepers are retired people whose eyes may not be focusing as good as they used to. So another thing for that is get very inexpensive but fairly strong uh, reading glasses. You get like sets of three of them for you know $10. They, I mean, every drugstore sells them. And uh, But see, the thing is there, you have a very limited focal distance, which is how far you hold something from your face. But uh, that's another option is to, of course, have those down on your nose so you can look over it when you need to see things that are farther away. But then just tip your head back when you bring things up close and look through your reading glasses and get a really good uh, bead on those eggs and things like that. That's the best I know to do right there. Moving on to question number six from Joe Powder Springs, Georgia. What kind of ants eat honeybees? I had a queen and about 10 attendants in a five by five vented box with one eighth inch screen and the black ants overnight ate them all. So a queen honeybee with 10 attendants. This sounds like a uh, mating nuke or something like that. And uh, it's not the first time I've saved a queen in the same spot for the next day. So here's the thing, the number one ant variety that's probably down there in Georgia I haven't spent any time in Georgia, but I used to live in South Carolina and we had the fire ants Some fire ants will move in and clean out a tiny bee colony overnight, pretty easy and pretty fast. I don't know about the black ants, but uh, the other thing is, what are you putting that five by five by five vented box on? I would make sure it's off the ground, well off the ground. And then there are a lot of options for keeping ants from climbing up in there and attacking your bees, no matter what size hive you have. So if you're on posts, metal support stands and things like that, ants are pheromone based, just like bees are. And ants, if you notice when they're trailing across the ground, they're following each other's pheromone. Ever rub your finger through that and see the ant kind of go all over the place trying to pick up the trail again? So they're not navigating by sight, they're following the food source or where the nest is and things like that. They follow their own scent and you can disrupt that really easily so if it's a temporary problem and uh, you wanted to knock those out a lot of people put pie plates out and fill them with water coffee cans fill them with water put the legs in it uh, you can also put gel mint gel toothpaste just rub it on the legs of your hive and that has to be refreshed from time to time but they do not like that minty smell and the ants won't cross it now we're assuming your ants are not already up there living in your beehive, but if it's a little five by five, which might be a polystyrene, I don't know the material that that one was made out of, but you can keep ants out a lot of different ways. But my guess is going to be fire ants. So, and you can also find the fire ant hill and find out where they're from and dump diatomaceous earth on it or something like that. That's a non-chemical way of dealing with ants because it desiccates them, dries them out. And that would have to be refreshed every time there was a rain and stuff like that. But uh, the way you configure your hive can, uh, can have ant moats and ways to block ants and things like that. Question number seven going on, Marcel from Wright City, Missouri. Does honey made from anise hyssop taste like black licorice? I've heard a lot of people say it does taste like licorice, has a little licorice flavor to it. And here's the thing, um, I have hyssop here, but you know, the bees aren't 
foraging exclusively on one variety through the year. I suppose if you had a huge hyssop patch, which is my personal goal, um, if you had a huge hyssop patch and it's predominantly what they're getting their nectar from, I think you would probably smell it. It would be a pretty strong honey. And some people, guess what? Love it. Some people, if it tastes like licorice, not a fan. So probably it's good to think that out ahead of time as you begin to, if you're going to be planting hyssop. Uh, plan out ahead of time. It's kind of in the mint family. Somebody who's into botany will probably clear that up in the comment section. But uh, any flowers that are from the mint family have the potential to change the flavor of your honey a little bit. So I've heard that. I've never tasted it myself. So I can't tell in my own. So I'm not a honey sommelier, so I'm not an expert in that. But yes, I've been told hyssop can leave a licorice um, scent and taste. Question number eight. This comes from James JRTB3226. It says here, that's the YouTube channel name. It says, uh, nice setup, Fred. What do you think about flipping that feeder shim and putting sugar bricks or fondant directly on the top bars? That's what I do. I have found when it's cold, they tend to not break cluster to climb up into a rapid round. Would the insulation still be effective? Okay, so here's the thing. The feeder shims that I use, so I have a variety of different types of tops that I've put on my hives through the years. And I made feeder shims that had integrated bottom boards. So if you flip that over, that creates a big open space, first of all. And it would leave a space for you to put solid candy on or something like that, or if you want to use the mountain camp method. But let me just explain why I feed the way I do and where I do. So the other part of the question is the rapid round, you know, you have an insulated inner cover, the rapid round sits on top. So let's use this for an example. Insulated inner cover, here's the bottom. This is not the inner cover that is being described here. The one that's being described here has a box around it and probably has my wooden inner cover built into it. So if we flip that over, we create the cavity underneath and now we have the top box backs of the frames and you would put food directly on those frames is that a better way to feed fondant or you know if you've got patties that you want to put on like winter patties or if you're putting pollen patties on they do get consumed the fastest and they are the most effective when put directly on the frames the reason i don't do that Flip it right set up. Now we've got the inner cover. Now we've got a hole right here. This one happens to be blocked, but you would pull this off. And by the way, put your cap in the little reservoir there. I've lost a cap. They don't sell individual caps. Your rapid round feeder would go directly over this hole. Now we've got a way to feed. Now the next question is, here's your insulation. It's underneath and your bees are down here, right? Does the air up in here get cold? It will. If you don't have insulation around it and insulation on top of it and once again I use double bubble for that and then I used to just cap it with a polystyrene exterior cover right so then we had this trapped airspace here the other thing is when you put your box around an inner cover like this you have holes around the edges so this would be a vented area through winter so what I've done is referencing the first question of today I use expansion foam around the inside and I actually bond the wooden feeder shim, which is usually a medium box, 10 frame or eight frame, but this is a 10 frame only insulated inner cover. So your box up here would be a 10 frame. And if it sat on an eight frame box, that would be a little bit of an overhang. So when I expansion foam the edges and then I just pack in the layers of double bubble or reflectex, whatever you want to call it. And then the cover goes on that. Now we've got a feeder up here that moisture goes up into in the winter time, since we're talking about solid feed, the inner covers out the solid feed. Some people pour sugar in here. Okay. Then that keeps this cover stays on because it keeps your bees from getting out into the larger space, but then having the double bubble up here, which by the way, I've only done for the past couple of years. And then that creates a warm spot. Condensation comes up to this surface 
and sticks to the underside of this and actually moistens the sugar that's up there. And that's a benefit to the bees because it takes a lot of effort for your honeybees in the wintertime to get up here and metabolize solid sugar. It also takes a lot of effort for your honeybees to metabolize a sugar brick. So you want condensation to form right on the underside of that where your bees are feeding. And uh, that works out for them. But this is where we go to the next step of that, which is some of the hives still get rapid rounds because they don't change everything at once. And the reason I don't do that is I want comparisons. So if I shifted last winter, or was it the winter before? Anyway, half of them had rapid rounds as emergency resources, half had fondant in packets that were self-contained. So what the packet did was took the place of this cover. So when you put your fondant on top of that inner cover where that little hole is, it it holds the heat. So the heat doesn't expand up through everything, but it also has insulation over the top of it. Condensation forms on the fondant and the bees consume that too. So there's a lot to think about, but yes, uh, insulated. Here's why I don't just invert that and put it directly on the frame backs. And that's because middle of winter, when we get those odd warm days, and by warm days, I mean 40s and sunny, you pull off the top cover, lift up a couple of sheets of Reflectex, and you can look and see what's going on here and if you need more food or not. Now, if I have fed underneath the inner cover, now I have to pull the whole thing off, expose all of that, and just to find out if I need to add more food or not. So if it's above the insulated inner cover and I pull the outer cover to see it, I see it in a blink. I haven't disrupted the bees. I haven't had to break any seals because when you invert the cover to create that, now you're interrupting the propolis seal that binds that to the lower boxes. And when you do that on cold days, the bees are not in a position to reseal it. Where if now it's set the right side up with the insulated cover underneath your resource, when I pull the top off, there's no propolis seal on that anyway, so I've not disrupted the hive just to find out if I have the food and resources. Now, if I find out they've consumed their resources and need to add to it, the exposure is very limited, and I can do that on marginal days. So that's my reasoning behind it. And you can do things um, any way you want, and if it works, it works. Nobody can argue with that. But uh, that's why I don't put the food directly on um, the frames. Question number nine comes from Terry. Uh, let's see, Nebraska City, Nebraska. Have you done any research on the new Varroa mite treatment developed in Israel called To Be Hive Master? They have several videos on YouTube. Okay, so I haven't tested it. What I did do is I did a brief search, just like anybody would, and I found out that Inside the Hive TV has a video about it. Now, here's what I want to tell people and share just my thoughts on this. When something new comes out and it's a treatment or a new delivery system for oxalic acid, this, by the way, claims to be a delivery system that can be adapted to a variety of different varroicides, right? So once it's in place and can be used, the other thing is it looks pretty elaborate to me. Uh, what I'm going to suggest is always that wait and see. Let a bunch of other people spend their money and, and listen to how well that worked for them. The other thing is whenever there's a miticide developed and approved in the United States or whatever state you're in, uh, it goes through an approval process. So always do a back check and find out is this an approved material as a miticide? Is it an approved method for delivery? Because keep in mind, we can't just throw miticides in there any way we decide to. Part of the approval process for the treatment is the delivery method. So we always have to backtrack. If you're trying to be conscientious like that, I realize that there are some people that just want to do whatever they want to do when they feel like doing it. And I'm not here to tell you otherwise. I'm just letting you know that if you're trying to do the right thing, uh, wait and see. And then before you try it, make sure that what you're about to try 
is approved because you're going to find out the approval processes are pretty sophisticated. So I'll put a link down in the video description underneath question number nine to my shout out for today, which is Inside the Hive TV, which is run by Dr. Umberto Boncristiani. So very good information there. And he's good at introducing it, showing you that it works, but again, drawing no conclusions. So it's something that if you just like to be up to speed on different things, this is something that you may want to know more about. So now we're in the fluff section for today. That's the last of it. And uh, just as I said before, don't forget, you're a beekeeper. Don't be caught off guard when somebody says, hey, happy National Bee Day, Honey Bee Day, more specifically. And so put the word out, great opportunity for you to share on social media. And number two here, I've had skunk issues here. I thought I was all set. My hives are set pretty high off the ground. We have historically said 16 to 18 inches landing board height will keep your skunk away. Had a skunk show up, fed on a colony for more than an hour. I don't know where these gymnastic skunks are coming from. But the good news, my seven-year-old grandson showed up and what do you think he said? This was just yesterday. He wants to make a YouTube video. He wants people to know how you outsmart skunks and he wanted us to pull apart that beehive and reassemble it on a taller hive stand so at the very end of today after the closing sequence here if you want to stick around and watch you're going to see first of all the skunk that we're talking about and how it was feeding on the bees and then and by the way you want your headphones on for that because the audio of the skunk doing what it's doing is pretty impressive second part of that seven-year-old junior beekeeper he made me write that on a ball cap so his friends would know underneath the bill official junior beekeeper so shout out to him for wanting to go out and do that and he does the presentation so i hope you enjoyed that part and yes we foiled the skunk it cannot get to those bees anymore but when you see how high he decided that we needed that uh beehive to be uh and i believe in letting kids make a suggestion and if it doesn't look dangerous or if it's not going to harm something, part of teaching kids to problem solve is not snow plowing. And for those of you who don't understand that term, snow plowing is moving every obstacle out of the way of the child. Uh, let them kind of put out what they think their idea is, what they think the result is going to be, and then giving them the means to test that out. And then we'll kind of see the good and the bad of it. Did it work? Why did it work? What could we have done better? That kind of thing. I'm not going to give a lecture about it, but it really is fantastic to just facilitate a child's problem solving. What's the problem? What can we do about it? And then providing them with the equipment and resources to do what they think would be the right thing. The other funny thing too is in that presentation, he's wearing a full bee suit. Five minutes after he did it, he's out there with no bee suit standing next to the beehive explaining everything. So that was pretty funny. So the other part is he wanted to model full protective clothing. And uh, even though that's not what he does. So, and I'm sorry to laugh about that, but I thought it was funny too, because kids are very sophisticated today. And he's thinking about the example that he's setting. And he doesn't want other kids to be out there without their bee suits. Plus, he wants people to know that he has a bee suit. So it's funny, the logic of kids. And so the next thing is uh, the nectar flow is on. We have uh, goldenrod is in full bloom right now. Let's just run down the quick uh, list here in the northeastern United States. Asters are, of course, available. We have Joe Pie Weed. The bees are all over it. Hyssop, yes, the bees are all over the hyssop. White clover still prevails. We have, now this is the first time. I know it's not unusual, but for me, it's the first time I've ever videoed honeybees on water lilies getting pollen. I don't know if they're getting any water lily nectar, but the time they spend scrubbing their bodies through the water lilies is very interesting. So if you want to go back and look at the opening sequence for today, that's where you would see the honeybees on the water lilies. I was really excited to see that because I don't see that very often. They're also on the knapweed, which is an invasive weed, by the way, that people want to see out of here. Cosmos, they're on that. Also, there's lots of native bees on the cosmos. The other thing is I noticed that uh, the hyssop is heavily visited by bumblebees. So what else? And that's pretty much it for right now. 
So the next thing is you might be seeing your bees um, doing what looks like swarming in front of the hive. Don't be alarmed because here's what's happened. We're coming out of a semi-dearth period. And so the bees are now emerging from their pupa cells. And they've been doing that over the past week and a half. So what they're doing is they're migrating through their jobs inside the hive and they're starting to get their outside jobs. This results in, interestingly enough, mass um, orientation flights. So it's not like three or four of them go out, fly around and go in. Once they realize where they live, they go out by the hundreds and in some cases thousands, but they do nothing. They meander around in front of the hive and then eventually it dies down and they all go back inside. The other tell for this is if you've got a number of beehives, you'll see this happening at a number of different hives on the same day at roughly the same time. They're all doing their orientation flights and that's because they started building their brood at roughly the same time based on the environmental triggers when these new pollen and nectar resources started coming in. So that's going on and orientation flights, that is not robbing. If you see robbing, you'll see fighting on the landing board. You'll see dirty footprints on the landing board, little sticky spots all over the landing board. And you'll see um, bits and pieces of torn off wax cappings starting to be strewn around. There are a lot of things that make the distinction between robbing and orientation flights and things like that. So what's going on here anyway are orientation flights by the hundreds if not thousands and it sounds like a swarm until you get up close and really observe what they're doing. So hopefully for those of you who found that you had varroa in your hives and that you had to do treatments, if you're a treatment beekeeper, then uh, hopefully you're doing follow-ups to find out how effective that was because we're coming up on the end of your time to play when it comes to varroa mites. We wanna make sure that as we get into September and late August, that uh, they're starting to look towards developing their winter fat bodied bees. And when they do that, we want them to be in prime condition, very healthy, and they'll do this near the end of the nectar flow that's going on right now. So that's pretty much it. And remember, we have a great beekeeping weekend ahead and that's the Northeastern United States. Sorry for other parts of the country. I know the Southwest is being hit with a major storm right now and there's a lot going on. So. Thank you for spending your time with me here today. I hope you learned something new or found some useful information. And if again, you want to submit your own question for consideration, please follow the link down in the video description or just go directly to thewaytobe.org and click on the page also titled The Way to Be. There's a form there. So thanks for watching. And now I leave you with our skunk demonstration and the follow-up with my grandson. Have a great weekend.
welcome to the way to be. So we had a skunk. Um, last night we had a skunk um, eating our beehive for an hour, over an hour. So follow me. There's a bunch of beehives. Um, so the beehive right there was on top of the wood. There's a bunch of those on top of the wood, but this beehive was kind of like the entrance was kind of like down here, kind of. So the skunk came. You can see a little bit of mud right here. So um, yeah, the skunk came. Right, and the bees were, and the skunk was eating the bees for uh, over an hour. So we had to do some work. Um, let's set this up. And then we had, and then we took, it was too heavy, so we had to take apart the beehive with our high tools. You can see right here, high tool. And I got another one right here. Um, and then we put, so we took it apart, we put it back together. Um, put it back together um, and then we then we put our stuff away and then we started working. I don't so we made a hider so the bees won't eat it. And most of the hives, all of the hives in the bee yard is all of them are high enough. You can see mud on the bottom so you know if those would be hit. But yeah I don't know why skunk skunks keep eating these bees. Mm -hmm. So we made it higher. Last time we put a um an alarm. It didn't it didn't work. It didn't bother. It just after it went off the skunk just stayed and kept eating. Like it was a snack, like mom, time to get rid of your mm -hmm. snack and like it didn't listen. So it's kinda like that. So these poor bees were getting eaten. When we opened this, we um, we found out there was a bunch of bees that are doing really well, and they had a, a lot of honey. We think it's like one a couple gallons, but that's still good for how much bees we have. They're kind of they're they're kind of getting used to it, kind of. But yeah, they're they're pretty much fine after. What happened to that poor bee up here? I have a brush too. I had to brush them off kind of like that. There's a bee. Was it that? So, yeah, um, we were, um, we don't, skunks are good. We don't want to kill them. Um, so we just raised the beehive higher so no harm to anybody now. Yeah, so it's higher. It was kind of like right here, but now it's up here. It's really nice. And we really hope this skunk goes away. But yeah. So if a if it's lower, if if any beehive is lower than 18 inches, one foot, um, and one foot and a half, um, skunks could eat it skunks are able to eat it but if it's 18 inches or higher we are good no skunks well try they might try and figure it out but they can't if it's over 18 inches and most of the hives especially the one over there that's definitely over 18 inches that's that's pretty high So I hope you enjoyed the video. Make sure to take care of your bees, take care of skunks, and this is the way to be. Stand right in front of the hive. Why does it look so packed in the front? Inside a hive.